Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We're currently studying verse by verse through the book of Esther, the story of God's perfect work through imperfect people. So open your Bible and join us as we remind ourselves that in every situation, God is in control. Well, I'm very excited to have the headset mic back after what has been known as the Great Flood Catastrophe of Eden Worship Center 2015. Some of you know that we had a serious water issue that ruined most of our electronics, uh, and, and so some of them have been restored and repaired, like this microphone, and some of them the insurance will be uh, purchasing new versions of for us, but uh, in all of it, God's good, amen? amen? Open up to Esther chapter 2. We're going to be continuing on in this book. We're, we're tackling a rather lengthy section this morning. Uh, verse-wise. We're going to be reading the first 18 verses of, of Esther chapter 2. Why don't you stand up with me? Uh, the words are going to be up on the screen, but, but if you need a Bible back in the back on, on both sides, we've got some stacks of Bibles. You're welcome to take one of those home if you don't have a good translation. It's the translation that we preach out of here, the ESV or elect standard version as it's known. No? Okay. English standard version. Uh, we're going to be reading from Esther Chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemi, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away when Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young woman to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would Return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. When Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head to make her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that, that uh, every word in this book is pure. Every word is perfect. Every word, God, conveys 
not only your truth, but is filled with your spirit. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us from your word this morning. God, I pray you would call our hearts to a, a more faithful following of your son, Jesus. I pray, God, that, that dead hearts would come alive, that deaf ears would hear, that blind eyes would see. We pray, Lord, you'd exalt yourself in the preaching of your word. And I do pray for myself, Lord. Let the meditations of my heart, let the words of my mouth be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, this passage... Like I said, kind of a lengthy passage, but what we're looking at this morning is really the Bible's Cinderella story. This is, it's like a Christian Disney princess fairy tale that that we've just read. It's a beauty pageant where the innocent, pure church girl ends up winning. She impresses everyone with her winning smile and her moral purity. And, And what we see here is Esther is this perfect example for all little girls everywhere. Well, that's how it gets presented most of the time. This passage gets presented with sort of that, that, that romantic sheen that you see in Disney prince and princess stories. Nothing could be farther from the truth, sadly. Esther, too, is not overflowing with romance. In fact, it's a dark and uncomfortable story when you really realize what's happening in this story. In Esther, too, we see women being objectified. Women being treated like commodities, treated like cattle. There's a predatory man, King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes as most of us know him, who who thinks of himself as a god, who expects to be treated like a god, and who is victimizing a rather large group of women and doing something actually quite terrible to his kingdom. Even the good guys in this story, who we just get to meet in this passage for the first time, Mordecai and Esther, Even these two, the the good guys in this story, it seems to them that fear is more powerful than faith. Their actions are morally ambiguous at best, but actually just sinful. And yet in the midst of this, in the midst of all this darkness that's going on in the greater story of Esther and in this passage that we're looking at this morning, in the midst of all of it, We're invited to trace the fingerprints of a sovereign God. God is at work in this story. God is working in and through everything that's happening in the book of Esther. Everything we read in this passage, all the sin, all the questionable decisions, God is working in and through all of these things to accomplish his good purposes. So this is is not a fairy tale. Esther is not a fairy tale where a young Jewish girl falls in love with with Prince Charming. It's a real-world story where things are messy. Esther is a messy story, just like our lives are messy. Our lives are filled with messes. There's, There's three kinds of messes we have in our life. There's the messes we've made, we've made some decisions, we've done some things, and those have brought trouble into our life. And there's the messes that, that other people's decisions have brought into our life. Things have been done to us. So, so in this story, we see people who have made their own decisions, and we see people who decisions have made for them. Maybe their family told this young virgin girl, uh, you're going. This is our shot. You're going there. And decisions have been made that, that created this situation in our life. And the third is just the messiness of living in a fallen world where, where disease happens, where disasters happen, where where accidents happen, and yet God is using all of it for his good purposes. So so God is not confounded. God is not shocked. God is not dismayed when trouble comes into our life, when tragedy happens, when sorrows come, even when sins happen. It's not like God is always adjusting his plan based on the the events that happen in the world. He has a word for the abused. He has a word for the abusers. He has a a word for those who are suffering, and he has a word for those who are causing it. He has a word for the naive, and he has a word for the cynical. The gospel is a real-world gospel. It's not some ivory tower concept that we just try to wrap our minds around some theoretical thing. It's for the real world, the real world where there's all kinds of messes that that come upon us and messes that we make ourselves. 
And so Esther 2, as bleak as the story is, offers us this unspeakable hope. And and that's this, God's purposes will stand. When we read in Esther, when we examine the experiences of our lives, we're supposed to learn from a book like Esther that God's purposes will stand. When trouble comes in my life, I can look back on a passage like this one and I can say God's purposes will stand. He is working through the events of our lives, the good, the bad, even our own sin. And so let's kind of dive into this passage here and see what it's got. Verse one, after these things, you may want to just keep your, your finger there in Esther 2. After these things, well, well, what are these things? Just a refresher, we have a drunken King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes. Uh, he has thrown a six-month-long party uh, and then he threw us, uh, right after that six months ended, he threw a separate week-long party, and the whole point of it was to exalt himself, to show off how wonderful he was, and, and sort of the culminating act of showing off how great he is and what his possessions are is he calls for his queen, Vashti, to come before the party, to come before the people, and, and so she refuses. She refuses to leave her party and come to his party. She refuses to come parade herself before his guests, she refuses, and he is outraged. And so he, he has these young advisors that he sort of talks to, and they talk him into essentially divorcing her. Put her away for the rest of her life. Have nothing to do with her again. And so, so chapter two then opens after these things, sometime later. In fact, it's, it's four years later we read, because later on we read this is the seventh year now of his reign. So, so that party was leading up, probably raising money and support for an invasion of Greece. Uh, Xerxes was taking this massive army of millions to invade Greece, uh, who, who he greatly outnumbered, and we know that that invasion failed. And so, so after these things is, after Xerxes has done all of these things with his wife, and after he's now come back, sort of tail between the legs, humiliated, uh, with a colossal failure on a major scale of the one thing he really wanted to accomplish. His, his father had failed in an invasion of Greece, and so Xerxes was going to be the guy who did it, and, and he failed. So, so now here he is. He's returned home. It says, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had, had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So, so four years after losing his temper and essentially divorcing his wife, after being humiliated in battle, he finds himself somewhat lonely and depressed. And so he remembered. When it says in the Bible he remembered, it usually means in a positive way. So he begins to think about what he liked about Queen Vashti. I remembered her. I, I, I'm thinking fondly of her, but he also remembered this. He remembered what had been decreed against her. And again, we see, we, we've mentioned this, if you've been around the last couple of weeks, about Xerxes, is he'll never take personal responsibility for anything. And so he doesn't remember what he did to Vashti. He remembers what was decreed against her. It's like he's this powerless person and things are just happening and, and he's got no responsibility for it whatsoever. So, so he, he talks to his, his advisors and they propose this, verse two. Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and gather, like cattle, all these young, beautiful virgins to the harem. Okay, surely if we take all the most beautiful young virgins in the entire kingdom, this was a kingdom so big the sun literally never set on the kingdom. It was the kingdom in the earth. Let's take all the most beautiful women. Surely one of them can take Vashti's place. And it says then in verse four, this pleased the king. Well, I'm sure it did. So, so he was feeling some, he was starting to have some feelings. Whatever feelings of remorse he started to have for Vashti, he didn't like dealing with them. And they are now all forgotten and his lust is freshly ignited. I'm starting to feel sad. Hey, let's get all the most beautiful women and bring them here for you to have sex with them. Okay, sounds like a good plan. Let's do it. His sad feelings are no longer being felt by him. They're being replaced with this lust that's starting to grow and burn in him. And the truth is that's the best that the unbelieving heart can hope for. The unbelieving, unregenerate heart, incapable of repentance, All that that heart can hope for is to replace one feeling with another feeling. All it can hope for is to avoid the feelings of guilt that come. But but here's the problem. They they can ignore their guilt for a while. They can hide from their guilt temporarily, but they can never remove the guilt. 
Only the blood of Jesus Christ does that. Only that cleanses the stain of sin that, that weighs on the conscience of a man. And so Xerxes here is doing the only thing he can do, which is I don't want to feel what I'm feeling, so I'm going to replace it with other feelings. And so, so the, the scene shifts now to introduce this small Jewish family living in the citadel of Susa. And so this book talks about Susa at large and then the citadel of Susa. So, so the city is Susa. The citadel would be that like inner Inside the city, there's another walled portion. It's the royal part of town. So here in the royal part of town, in the inner part of the city, we're introduced to this small Jewish family. Now remember, if you've been here the last couple weeks, about 60 years before this happens, King Cyrus the Great issues a decree that, that basically everyone within his kingdom can return to their homeland. They don't have to stay. So the Jews had been brought to Babylon as slaves. The Babylonians had been conquered by the Persians. And then King Cyrus says, you can actually return home. You can go back to Jerusalem. You can go back to Judah. And, and so they have been allowed for 60 years to do that, but many of them did not. So, so in essence, they remain exiles in a pagan land. Well, that's who we see here when we meet Mordecai and Esther. So verse 5, there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimi, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who's been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. Now notice how many times in this little couple of verses, carried away gets used. He was carried away with this person who'd been carried away when, when this king carried them away. So, so the, the author wants to kind of drill into our head. These are exiles. They are living as strangers in a strange land. It creates this feeling for us as Esther and Mordecai are introduced. It's just the two of them. It's just these two against the world. They have been carried away. They're, they're exiles. And so Esther, we see in verse 7, was orphaned as a child. Mordecai, her older cousin, adopted her. And so this then is a family, as they're introduced to us, who is a stranger in a strange land. And it's a family who's well acquainted with suffering and grief. But they belong to God. They belong to God. There was a Jew living in Susa. So that's our, our cue. These two belong to God. As if the author is saying, keep your eye on these two. God's not done with these two. Keep your eye on, on these two people. That's why we get Mordecai's lineage. Mordecai's lineage tells us something that's sort of important for a subtext in this book, and that is he's a descendant of King Saul. So when it says he's a descendant of Kish, Kish is King Saul's dad. And so that's going to play a role uh, in this story, kind of going on underneath the surface. But, but so there's these two people identified as God's people, but they're completely assimilated into pagan culture. In fact, their parents were probably completely assimilated into pagan culture. So Mordecai is a Babylonian name. It's not a Jewish name. It actually means man of Marduk or worshiper of Marduk, Marduk being a Babylonian god. So Mordecai here, we're introduced to this Jew who's named worshiper of false god Marduk. Now, why is King Saul's descendant named worshiper of Marduk? Well, they've been completely assimilated into this culture. Esther is introduced, it says Hadassah, that is Esther. In other words, her Jewish name is Hadassah, but the name she goes by is Esther, which is Ishtar. That's a female Babylonian god. So we're introduced to two of God's people who are completely fish out of water in this situation, completely assimilated. They're, they're in a place they shouldn't be. Their names even tell us something's wrong. We'll find out later in this passage, Mordecai even tells Esther, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. And so there's something going on with these people. Well, well in verse 8, this, this scene shifts back. So, so we start with the king. We shift to these two and meet them for the first time. And now we're back to the king again. The king's decree has been carried out. The citadel of Susa, that inside part of, of the city, the walled part, is overflowing now with young women. History tells us more than a thousand of the most beautiful young women in the kingdom are all brought together into this place. And Esther is one of those beautiful young virgins. In fact, it says something of Esther that no, nothing is said of of any other woman. She had a good body. So, so it wants us to know Esther's a part of this by virtue of what? How she looks. 
She is a part of this. She is one of these beautiful young women. So verse 8, Esther was taken into the king's palace and put into custody of Haggai, who's in charge of the women. So Esther's moved into the, the harem. Haggai is this eunuch that's in, in, charged, uh, in charge of all the women. He's had a particular surgical operation so that the king does not feel threatened by him being around all of his concubines. Haggai's in charge, and, and it tells us that, that immediately she finds favor with him. It says she finds favor in the eyes of Haggai and begins to immediately receive special treatment. Now this word favor here is this Hebrew word chesed, which, which is the same word when it talks about God's covenant kindness to his people. So, so there's this covenantal, you're God's person and you're now getting special treatment as a result of that, even though they don't know so, so there's all this kind of stuff going on. God is turning people's hearts towards Esther. Verse 15 even says Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So, so Haggai, the guy in charge, takes her. He goes, here's seven of the best helpers. They're yours now. They're just with you. Here's all the best food. Here's the best place in the harem. And instead of getting jealous and starting to plot her doom and destruction, everybody looks on her with favor. God has changed the hearts of people uh, to look on Esther with favor. Everyone in this pagan palace Look what verse 10 tells us. This is a, a significant point here. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So Mordecai said, don't reveal that you're a Jew. We don't know why he did this. Was it, was it fear? Was he afraid that there would be some backlash, that, that she maybe wouldn't be able to win the contest if they knew she was Jewish? Was it, was it shame? They, they were sort of welcomed into the society, uh, but still kind of second tier. So was it this thing of, I don't want our place in society to go down? We don't know, but, but we do know this. We, we don't know exactly why he said it, but we know what it means. What it means is this. Esther's not keeping the law. She's not going to keep the law of God. When, when she goes in to this process of this competition that's gonna last over a year, she's not obeying God's dietary laws for people. She is not going to obey the Sabbath. Uh, she's certainly not a, going to attempt to obey God's sexual laws. She is also attempting to marry a pagan. So we, we don't know exactly why Mordecai said, don't tell him you're Jewish, but we know that there's every intention, we're not keeping the law of God at this point. So the God of Israel for Esther and for Mordecai is a past tense thing. That was our people's deal. We come from there, that's our heritage, but that was their thing. We're not keeping his law. It's as if Mordecai is saying to Esther, we are out here on our own. It's you and me. We've got to make our way. We've got to make our future. Verse 12, now when the turn came for each young woman to go to the king, Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women. So guys, when, when, when you're ready to go somewhere and your wife's not yet ready, if it hasn't taken her a year, she's still doing better than this. This is a year. 12 months of spa. Okay, they're in, they're in a spa for 12 months to get ready for one night. One full year to get ready for one night. Uh, ointments to so soften and moisturize the skin. That the, the literal translation is the scraping. So there's, there's like oils and lotions being put on and scraped off. So the skin's being softened. It also was not cool to have a tan. So they're trying to get rid of the tan. Uh, they, they wanted them to smell just right. Uh, makeup was fully developed in this day. The Persians actually uh, considered makeup to be a science and a spiritual thing. So the priests were sort of the, the scientific spiritual leaders with makeup, uh, watching over and protecting the science of makeup. They believed beauty uh, brought you closer to the divine. So all of this is going on. And then these women brought from every corner of the, the world, like we're trying to make a queen here, so we're spending a year teaching them etiquette, teaching them how you b behave in royal circles, uh, all of that sort of thing is going on. Verse 13, when young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Now, we don't know what that means. We don't know if that means she, as a comfort, you can bring something, like bring your blanket. Uh, we don't know if it was sort of like, uh, odds are you're never seeing this guy again and you've given up your whole life, so here's your payment. You can have that. We don't know exactly what's going on there. Verse 14, in the evening she would go in 
In the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So, so catch this. The young woman goes in a virgin. She comes out a concubine. That's what's going on in this thing. She's, she's going to be provided for for the rest of her life no matter what, but she's never going to be allowed to marry. So, so you know the old saying, always a concubine, never a bride. That's, <laughs> that's what's going on for most of the, I think that's how the saying goes. But listen, if the king never calls on her by name again, then she's never with him again, which means this. Unless it happens that one night, she's never having a child, which is a huge deal. Uh, and so her life is not bad. You're living in a spa in wealth as sort of a socialite for the rest of your life, but you're never having a child. You're never allowed to marry. You belong to the king, even if the king never calls on you again, unless he calls you by name. And, and, and so here's the thing we know about Xerxes. He wasn't big on names. He was big on adding to the harem. So odds were that night was it. That night was your night. So, so this was actually a really awful thing to do to your kingdom. It's not just that this guy was an egomaniac and, and a lust-filled pig. This was a terrible way to rule your kingdom. It was a great injustice that, that's happening. You're taking women away from their homes and their families. We have no indication that this was a sort of under threat of death, you have to come. But there probably was some, some uh, strong, like, no, you should definitely agree to do this. Uh, you are taking women away from their homes, and although their life wasn't horrible, you, you've removed them from their homes, you've said, this is what your life is going to look like now forever. But even more than that, it was a terrible injustice to the men. These women are now all off the market. So you take upwards of a thousand young women and you just go, and they're gone. We're going to take every beautiful young woman from your town, and they're gone. You can't marry them. Uh, your, your, your numbers just became very limited in, in who you could find a wife from. And they do all of this, why? So Xerxes can sleep with them one night. That's the whole thing. It's a terrible way to, to rule and to reign. Well, verse 15, when the turn came for Esther to go to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. And so Esther is going in to lose her virginity to a pagan king. There have been a lot of attempts to sanitize this. If you've seen one night with the king, you've seen one, no, she she just read to him from the Bible. There have been a lot of attempts to sanitize this, but this is the reality. Esther's headed for a one-night stand with a pagan king, and it is not against her will. She's got her best outfit on. She's got her makeup, her perfume. She's taking with her the secrets that the chief eunuch has given her because the chief eunuch likes her and wants her to win. Verse 16, when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head, and he made her queen instead of Vashti. So Esther enters the sex contest, and Esther wins the sex contest. If your kids are in here, we do have Sunday school. You could have chosen that option. She wins. That's the story of Esther. Isn't that romantic? It's not romantic. And then people go, but it says the, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. That's got to mean something. It means not that he felt feelings of love for her. It means he felt, found her valuable. I find her valuable. She is of value. She is a valuable possession to me. So, so notice that it doesn't say, and the king loved Esther more than all the other women's, and, and made her queen instead of Vashti. And so he sent all the concubines home. He emptied the harem. It was just going to be him and Esther. From the, it doesn't say that. That's not happening. In fact, if we look at verse 19, where we'll start next week, it says, now when the virgins were gathered the second time, the king's harem grows. It doesn't shrink. And him choosing Esther does not stop that. We know of Xerxes that his harem was going to keep growing and consume his life. In fact, his lust led directly to his murder, which there's some awesome foreshadowing in this story when there's a plot from eunuchs to murder 
to murder Xerxes, when in fact Xerxes was murdered by a eunuch. But, but, but all of that happened because his lust grew and grew. This is not a romantic tale. This is not a sweet love story. So what on earth is going on with this book? This book that never mentions God, this book that no one prays in, this book that sees no miracles, this book that even the, the good guys are kind of bad guys? What, what is happening? It's such a weird story, and we haven't even gotten to the real carnage of the book. The book takes a dark turn. We haven't even gotten there yet. This is such a strange story that it's the only VeggieTales video that Bob the Tomato does not appear in. That's what, that's what kind of weird story. Roger Kaufman told me that. I appreciated it. That's how weird of a story we're dealing with when we're talking about Esther. Esther is a story where there's no moral clarity at all. Compare like a book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is written essentially very close to the same time period and the same place. Daniel's full of moral clarity. Daniel's put in these positions uh, where he might be killed for not eating the king's food, and he says, I will not break God's dietary law. Well, Esther is going to keep it a secret. She's going to break that law. Daniel puts his life on the line saying, I will not cease my prayers to God that have been commanded. And Esther says, I will keep it a secret that I'm Jewish. I, I will, in fact, not pray. I'm going to stop all of this kind of stuff. Right? There, there's no moral clarity in Esther when there's such moral clarity in other books. Xerxes is a terrible guy, and there's no statement made in the book condemning that. In fact, these stories are told in such a way that we can romanticize them and turn them into romantic, sweet things. There's atrocity that's going on. Esther and Mordecai, the good guys, appear to be thoroughly paganized. They should not be in Susa. They should have returned to the promised land. They don't obey the law of God. They don't keep the Sabbath. They don't obey the food laws. Esther's having a one-night stand with a pagan king that she's apparently super good at. She's marrying a pagan, a non-Jew. They're hiding the fact that they're Jews. Later, we will see a rather disconcerting amount of bloodlust coming from Esther and Mordecai. And we haven't even met Haman yet, who's a significantly gross villain in this story. And yet, listen to me, God's plans are being carried out to the letter. Perfectly. God is working through each person's decisions and actions to fulfill his eternal purposes. And this is so important for us to get. God is not working in spite of their actions. God is working through their actions. Esther is a story when we read it from front to back that we see each event needing to happen precisely as it happened for events to play out the way they did. God is not changing the plan based on what people do. God has written the plan. Esther is a book that displays God's sovereignty over human actions. It's these two things, these sort of twin truths. God is sovereign and humans make decisions. And those decisions matter. And we see that over and over. So why did Xerxes throw a huge drunken party? Because God ordained it. And because he wanted to raise money and show off his power. Why did Xerxes invade Greece? Well, because God ordained it. We read uh, the first Sunday a prophecy where God said, this king is going to invade Greece. God had ordained that he was going to do it. But Xerxes did it because he was sinfully power hungry. Why did Xerxes fail in his invasion of Greece when he, shouldn't have, when he should have won? Well, because God ordained it. And because the Greeks were, were tactical and smart. And because the weather played a huge role, smashing the Persian ships against the rocks. Why did Vashti refuse to come to his banquet? Because God ordained that she would refuse to come to his banquet, and she had some reason. Probably not, as the Jewish scholars said, because she had a tail. But there was some reasoning going on in her that made her say that. Why were Esther and Mordecai in Susa instead of Jerusalem? Because God ordained that they be in Susa instead of Jerusalem, and because they had been thoroughly Persianized and secularized. They wanted to be there. Why was Esther so physically attractive? Because God ordained it, and she apparently makes some good food choices. So we see God's action. We see human decisions. Why did Esther win favor with the eunuch and then the king? Because God ordained it, and Esther did some things to gain their favor. So we see this. We see God's 
command, God's decree, and we see the actions of human beings. And this plays out a hundred more times in this book. We're going to see over and over and over again people doing the things they have decided to do and that that was God's plan, that, that, that humans are making choices, but God is the one working the plan. So our God is sovereign. Our God is sovereign. And here's what that means. That means that anything ha- that happens to you, any good thing that happens to you, any bad thing that happens to you, it must pass through his hands first. It must. He could stop any of it. There are no accidents with God. There's no such thing as luck. That's what it means to have a sovereign God. God rules in complete and absolute power and control over things. God has decreed everything that has ever happened or ever will happen And he brings it all about for his own purposes. And he brings it through his own perfect will and perfect timing. Everything happens exactly as it should happen and exactly when it should happen. Now that may be a huge stretch for you. You might be one of those that comes to this church week after week and we say God is sovereign and you go amen. And then we start to unpack what it means for God to be sovereign and you go, oh, I don't like that. I do not, that's not what I grew up learning. Isaiah 46, verse 9, says this. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. See, God's sovereignty is actually a sweet doctrine for Christians. It's something people argue about, Something people get upset about, something people try to deny. I've heard these televangelists get up and say the the most evil teaching in the church today is the sovereignty of God, which should, by the way, make you never listen to anything they say again and pick at them if they come to your town. God's sovereignty is a sweet doctrine. It literally will change your life. It will change you. Wherever we find ourselves, whatever we have to deal with, we can know that God in his infinite wisdom has designed it for our good. To make us like Christ and to bring him glory. So so it's not an accident, church. It's not an accident that you are where you are. God has a perfect plan. Your family is not an accident, the family you were born into. Like Esther, like Mordecai, it was not an accident that you were born into this family. The place you live is not an accident. The people you are friends with, that's not an accident. Your weaknesses, the mistakes you've made, your bad decisions, none of those things are accidents with God. Your failures with your your wife or your husband, your failures as a parent. The things you look back on and say, boy, I wish I would have done that differently. The most painful experiences in your life, none of those are accidents with God. God in his sovereignty even works through our sins. So maybe you've totally blown it. Maybe you have completely messed things up in your life. Maybe you feel like sin has ruined your life or maybe you feel like it's ruining your life right now. Maybe you're suffering long-term consequences from your sin. Remember this, there are no accidents with God. This this truth that we see in in, in Scripture is so striking. That's why when we read the Apostle Paul, he has to say things like, of course that doesn't mean that we should sin more so grace would abound. This truth is so striking that God would work through our sin, that it even led people to question Paul and go, what, are you saying we should just sin more then? So God's will would be done, so his grace would abound, and Paul says, no, that's, that's insane. But that's how striking this truth is, that God is not working in spite of your sin, God is working through your sin, and yet that's no excuse for your sin, and you will be held responsible for your sin. It's twin truths, twin truths, going on the same track that we see here. The issue of God's sovereignty is an incredibly controversial one, and, and here's the reason. I, I've had the... Not pleasure, that would be the wrong word. 
I've had the distinct non-pleasure of being involved in many a conversation about this with people who were quite upset about the sovereignty of God. And here's the reason, every time. The reason that people are so upset by this is that we love our so-called free will. It is the thing. There are churches, there are entire theological systems who have said the one, the, the first thing, the thing we will uh, presuppose in everything we talk about is our free will. We love it because we love ourselves. We love ourselves, so we're deeply committed to this idea of free will. The truth is, and maybe that's you, maybe you're like, if he starts questioning free will, should I leave? Will that cause a scene? Which I just won't listen anymore. That's what I'm going to do. Let me tell you this. Nobody believes in unrestrained free will. And if you say, yes, I do, then I would say fly real quick. So nobody believes that. The question is, where does the line get drawn and who draws it? Does that make sense? You can't fly because that's not in keeping with God, how God created human beings to operate. And so what I would say is let's bring our understanding of free will into line with how God created human beings to operate. And so, so we love that idea. So all Christians believe that, that God directs the path of the galaxies. You could say that in any, in any evangelical Christian church and go, amen, he does. That's our God. But then many of those same people would be offended by the thought of him directing human decisions. So we have no problem saying things like God controls history, but then what does that really mean? If God controls history, here's what it means. He controls the human beings who make history. So see, we, we see people who are, who are making a statement and they go, yes, I could say God controls history and you'd go, Amen. And then if we talked a little longer and I said, that means God controls the people who make history, you'd go, I don't like that one. That would make those people robots. What about all the evil that goes on in the world? That's one of the big questions. All the evil that's happened throughout history, all the evil that's going on now in the world, all the evil we see in a book like Esther, are people responsible for the evil that they do? Are people responsible for the sin that they do? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely, yes, they are responsible, but that's not all that's going on. This is what the sovereignty of God means. It means in the evil that we are responsible for, in the evil that we will answer for, that's not the only thing that's happening. God is using that evil for his good purposes. So look at the story of Joseph. That's a great example. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, a great evil perpetrated against him. Not only is he sold, but then he kind of ascends to a place of, of authority in the house of his master, and then the master's wife perpetrates a horrendous evil against him and gets him thrown in prison. And at the end of the day, his brothers, who started this whole ball of misery and sin and suffering rolling, are standing before jo Joseph as he is one of the, the highest authorities in all of Egypt. Joseph says this to them, Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. Okay, so, so you are guilty. You are guilty of a sin that you will give an account for. You meant evil, but what else? That's not all that's happening. God meant it for good to bring about many people who should be kept alive as they are today. So, so the situation of Joseph was not his brothers did something bad and God chose to make lemonade out of lemons. The situation of Joseph is God ordained that Joseph's brothers would sin and sell him into slavery and he ordained that Potiphar's wife would sin and accuse him of rape and he ordained that he be thrown in prison so that he could be elevated so that God's people could be saved so that the Messiah could come so that you, Christian, could spend eternity with God. We stretch out the story through eternity and we go, I don't have such a problem with what happened to Joseph. But when you're Joseph, you got moments where you say, a good God would not send this my way. God's plans are eternal plans. We need to look at them from an eternal perspective. So it's one event. Joseph is sold into slavery. One event. In that one event, his brothers did evil, and God knows it. And in that one event, God was working for good. Same event. 
So the Bible's not afraid to show that God is sovereign, ruling over evil. Isaiah 45, verse 6, I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. Now listen, this one might blow your theology out of the water. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Lamentations 3, verse 37. Who has spoken and it has come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? It's not, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? It's very well received in the church today to say God would have nothing to do with that. Some natural disaster comes and some preacher goes, we better be listening for God's voice. And people are like, oh, you monster. And see, that's why people hate God because you've accused God of evil. And yet it says, I'm the Lord. I make well-being. I bring calamity. It's from my mouth that both good and bad come. But in all of this, this is so important. God never violates his holiness. God never forces a person to sin. When we sin, we're doing exactly what we want to do. In the story of Esther, we're going to meet this guy, Haman. Haman is a perfect example of this. Haman's one of the great bad guys in all of history, in all of the Bible. And Haman falls by divine providence. It's Haman's destiny to fall. Haman was created to fall. That's the story with Haman. We'll learn. I told you that there's this kind of understory that Mordecai is a descendant of King Saul. Well, Haman is an Amalekite. So there's this scene in the Old Testament where God commands the Israelites, the Amalekites, kill them. Kill all of them. Kill the men, kill the women, kill the children, kill the animals, kill all of them, and Saul disobeys. Saul can't bring himself to do it. Saul kills most of them. Saul brings the king back with him and some of the cattle because he wants to increase his own riches. He wants to show his might by dragging this king and his power over him. And the prophet comes to, to Saul and he says, Saul, did you do it? And Saul said, yeah, I did it. And he says, then why can I hear sheep? <laughs> Saul is judged harshly. See, see, Haman shouldn't exist. Our God, our loving, good God, commanded that all Amalekites be wiped off the face of the earth. And now here's Haman, and Haman is destined for the destruction, and it is God's plan. But Haman is going to go down because of his own sin, because of his own pride, because of the decisions he makes. So God's not forcing Haman to sin. Haman's doing exactly what Haman wants to do. So divine sovereignty, human responsibility are these twin truths. God is involved in all human actions, including evil. And I know for some of you, you're not with that. You're struggling with that. You've maybe grown up with something that says, that is a terrible, terrible thing to say of God. And I've shown you a couple passages where God says it of God. As we go through the book of Esther, it's undeniable. Things had to happen the way they happened. But if that doesn't fit in your theological framework, let me give you this. Consider the greatest evil in all of history. That is the unjust murder of the morally perfect Jesus Christ. There's never been a greater injustice because there's never been a perfect person. See, all of us are doing better than we deserve. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was the creator God Almighty come to earth. And I want to talk just a little bit about how, how Scripture, how the apostles talked about what happened with Jesus. Acts 2. Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Listen to verse 32. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed with the hands of lawless men. So this is the predetermined plan of God, right? Well, Christians, we affirm this. God's plan from eternity has been the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for sins. Amen? You all tracking with me? 
So he says, this happened according to God's predetermined plan from eternity past, and yet what? And yet you, you, men of Israel, nailed him to a cross. So, so men of Israel, you are totally guilty for your actions. The testimony of Scripture is clear on this. Totally guilty for your actions in the murder of Jesus Christ, and yet their actions were predetermined by God's plan. How about Acts 4, verse 27? Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So we see Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel have all come together, conspired together to do what they want to do, that is to kill Jesus. They were doing what they wanted to do, but what? They were doing exactly what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. So were they guilty? Were they responsible for their actions? Of course they were. But it was all according to God's predestined plan. So the realization of God's involvement in the death of Jesus, again, the greatest evil. And the fact that many Christians today don't consider that the greatest evil, the fact that they would come back and go, okay, yes, in the death of Jesus, but what about rape? What about natural disaster? The fact that we don't think the murder of Jesus Christ is the greatest evil says something about our hearts and our self-importance. Does it not? This is a God of the universe. But see, they had they, they, this realization that, that God was involved, that God had planned out the greatest evil that ever happened in human history, it did not cause them to doubt either God's goodness or God's omnipotence. Omnipotence just means God is all-powerful, can do whatever he wants to do. And it didn't cause them to resign themselves to a fatalism that, that says, I guess it's all written, it's just going to happen the way it happens, we'll do nothing. Is that the testimony of the early church? Far from it. To the contrary, it was a huge motivation for them. It gave them courage. So, so we just read Acts uh, 4, verses 27 and 28. Look at the next verse, 29. And now, Lord. Okay, so we just said, they murdered Jesus. And in doing so, they were doing whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. And then it says, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And so, what was their response? Their response wasn't fatalism. God's written the whole story. We're just going to let it ride. Just let whatever happened happen. Nothing we do matters. It was quite the opposite. They were bold in the face of overwhelming persecution because they understood God's sovereignty. Because they knew God was sovereign over salvation. Because they knew God was sovereign even in their suffering. That it wasn't meaningless. It was purposeful. To them, this wasn't some ivory tower mental thing that they just kind of thought about and argued about. This was power in the face of their potential murder that said God's purposes are unstoppable. And how do we know? Because he foreordained even the evil that was perpetrated against Jesus Christ. I mean, imagine if that wasn't true. Imagine if Pontius Pilate, imagine if the Jewish leaders, imagine if all these people that it gets named there in Acts had the choice to either do it or not do it. God just created circumstances in such a way that the conditions were right for, in all likelihood, Jesus to get murdered. What does that mean? It means God was gambling with the salvation of all people for all time. It means that God was gambling with his own eternal plan. It means God had made some promises throughout history that may or may not come true. So you tell me, is God the kind of God who would take a chance like that? What about John the Baptist? God tells John the Baptist's parents while they're pregnant with him, this is exactly who your son's going to be. He's going to be a prophet. He's the one the Old Testament spoke of that said he'll prepare a way for the Messiah. Does that mean John the Baptist was born and either could have or could not have been that guy? 
What does it mean about God if John the Baptist could have chosen that or not chosen that? See, in these situations, we go, no, that's right. John the Baptist had to be John the Baptist or else God's a liar. But when it's our lives, now we start to protest, don't we? Now we start to say, I better have total freedom to do what I want to do. We've totally missed the idea of what freedom looks like. Freedom looks like this. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God made you alive. Now you're free. Now you can live like it. When God makes us alive, we have a new heart that has new desires. So God, no, 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 no. God never forces anyone to sin. That's all dead people do. All they do is sin. But Christian, God made you alive, and now you're free. Now you're alive. Worship team, if you want to come on up. This isn't some theoretical thing. This isn't the kind of thing we should sit around and, and, and get mad about and argue about. If, if all the sovereignty of God is to you is an argument, then you've missed the point entirely. God is governing the universe and history towards a certain goal. That goal is to unite all things to himself in Jesus Christ. And this goal is so glorious, this goal is so good that no temporary earthly evil could possibly compare to that. And that means that everything God does in order to accomplish this goal is good. So we look at the story of Esther and we see God orchestrating history in the decisions of people, some of which are quite evil, but when we stretch out the whole story to see God is preserving a people for himself, that he might unite all things to himself for all time in Christ Jesus, then we can look at the story of Esther and go, and I'm glad it went down the way it went. God, it is good what you have done even using people in their evil and their own evil desires. I would just close with this. This will change your life. If you're one who has an argument with this, if you're one whose theology is being a little blown out of the water and you're not sure if I'm a terrible heretic or what the situation is, I would say two things. One, you can talk to me anytime and I won't be threatened by it and I'm happy to talk to you and nothing really makes me happier in the whole world actually so it'll be fine. An hour later you'll be like, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have talked to him. That's number one. Number two, it will transform your life. When trouble comes your way, when trials come your way, you will see them differently. You will see the world differently and you will have a motivation you did not have before. The life of satisfaction in God is the life that trusts in his sovereignty. You want to be satisfied in God? Begin to trust his sovereignty. Begin to trust his rule. Begin to trust that these words are true, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Begin to trust that that's true. Not just in some pithy way, terrible things happened to me that, that caught God by surprise and now he's going to twist it somehow. No, that this thing that has come into my life was designed by God for my good, even if it's evil. It will change your life. Submit yourself to that. Submit yourself to the sovereignty of God. Rejoice in it. This is the theology we can sing we can't sing, I by my own free will finally made the right choices and now God will accept me. What a crappy song that is. How about a God whose purposes will stand and wrapped up in that purpose is that I would be eternally satisfied in him. I could sing that with gusto. A God who will never leave me, a God who will never forsake me because he is so committed to the glory of his name and his eternal plan. Be comforted by that. See your trials. See your suffering in light of that, in light of God's sovereign, eternal, perfect plan. Let it motivate you to boldness in your faith. Let it push you towards prayer. Let it inform your prayer. If we really believe this, we could pray that God would save our loved ones because we'd believe that's the kind of thing God does. That's what you're praying when you pray someone would get saved. You're not praying God make them smart so they see the truth. You're praying God save them. Make their dead heart come alive. We can pray it because we believe it. 
Let it give you confidence in sharing the gospel. Like, like these, these saints we read in the book of Acts who pray this prayer, God, they came together to sin in the most evil possible way. They're breathing out murderous threats against us and it was all according to your plan. Therefore, God, give us boldness to share the truth while you stretch out your hand to do your work. Let it motivate and inform your prayer, your confidence in sharing the gospel and cause you to trust in God's goodness even when you don't see it in the moment. Let's just stand up to to sing together. just want to encourage you as we come into this time. We sang this song earlier. One of the great hymns of all time in the church. A mighty fortress is our God, written by Martin Luther during the Reformation. He's facing the opposition of the most powerful entity on earth, the Roman Catholic Church, literally breathing out threats against his life on a daily basis. In the midst of peril, in the midst of Despair in the midst of struggle and, and the most intense battle, he writes this song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And, and those words we sang this morning, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. Now those devils might be a, an increasingly hostile culture that's, that's coming against us. It might be very real demonic forces that are coming against you, seeking to undermine God's work in your life. And you might be the devil filling this world your own sin, your own evil choices. Though this world with devils filled with would threaten to undo us, says this, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. There may be all kinds of things that have come into your life, all kinds of attacks from the outside, all kinds of sin from the inside. And, and in the midst of it all, the sovereignty of God would cause us to say this, We will not fear because God has willed his truth to triumph through me. And all the things that happen to me and all the sin that I commit, God has chosen his truth to triumph in this world through me. That that gives us motivation, amen? Amen. So we'll just spend some time singing this song together.